we have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for 12 months for just $62.99 and save 30% on the newsstand price. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $62.99. You'll find our special subscription offer at australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Welcome to Talking Australia. My guest today is Sophie Matteson. We first met Sophie about a year ago here on Talking Australia, when she was partway through her grand epic traverse of Australia, travelling west to east on foot with only five camels for company. At that time, Sophie was resting her camels in the Flinders Ranges in South Australia as the temperature started to climb too high. But a couple of months later, she was back on the track with the camels, completing the second half of her epic trek. And she's now finished. She's in Byron Bay, and she joins us today on Talking Australia. Great to hear from you again, Sophie. Hi, Chrissy. Lovely to be back on the show. So you're in Byron Bay, and you finished? Yes, I am. I am. It's it's wonderful to be here on the East Coast, and the camels are taking a, a lovely break now. So tell us a little bit about um, when you got back to the Flinders Ranges. You had to round up your camels because they'd actually been let run free for all of those months um, to fatten up again and and to get their condition back and and really to have a rest. So what was the process like of of rounding them up in such a vast area? Mm, Well, that was it ended up being a bit of a a feat in itself. Um, When I got back there, the Flinders had had a fair bit of rain over the the past year. And I guess a lot of the the fence line was down around the property. And I'm talking when I say property, it was about 900 square kilometres. So a a huge area that they are roaming around. And um, uh, they were with a friend's camels um, and with the camels from a company called Camel Treks Australia. And uh, they had gone out looking on motorbikes for the camels. No sign of tracks. So about, you know, a week, coming on two weeks later, we were sort of all starting to get a little bit concerned that none of our camels had shown up. Um, and uh, and it was at that point in time we actually decided to go up in, in a couple of light aircrafts and look for them from the air. Uh, which was, which was, it, you know, turned out to be the best way to do it. We spotted them probably about three hours into the flight. Um, beautiful to go up in the air and see the flinders and see that vast landscape from from up there. And and it was definitely a sigh of relief when we saw those camels on the ground. <laughs> and did you have to? Did you just sort of GPS locate them and then fly back and go and get them? Is that was that the process? Yeah, we did. We put in the GPS coordinate of, of where we had spotted them. And then after that, when we came and landed back at the homestead, we basically went straight out on motorbikes and uh, went and spotted them again. And then we just started to, to slowly slowly drive behind them on the motorbikes. And, and most of the camels had been mustered on bike before, so they were really chilled out and they just walked straight into a, into a set of yards. I mean, it took a while. It was probably about two days to walk them back to these yards 
in the end. And um, yeah, and then I was able to see my my mob of five and I spotted them straight away. I was in tears, of course, straight away because I'd missed them so much over the summer and, and, and they looked just fantastic. They had put on so much condition over the summer, which was just amazing to see because when I'd left them, I'd sort of thought there was one camel, Charlie in particular, and I thought he might not make it to the East Coast because he was so skinny when I left him. Uh, and he had magically grown a hump over those six months <laughs> and, and they all looked so well and what about when they saw you did they recognize you do they do that do they sort of kind of respond in any way or they just keep chewing the cud (laughs) (laughs) they definitely do actually you know I mean it's not like a dog they don't come running over wagging a tail or anything (laughs) like that but but I remember I was you know I was sort of as they came in I was I was standing by the gate of the yards and and I saw all of their heads sort of turn and acknowledge me um you know and then and then when I went over and and saw them again for the first time camels do this thing where they bring their face down to your face and they really smell you like it's a long long smell um into your face and and they each did that like it was this big acknowledgement of oh you've been away for a long time what have you been doing and and how are you (laughs) <laughs> that is just there must have been a great moment and uh and of course then you had news for them which is off we go again and uh, so you started the second half of your trek uh now this is uh obviously going from you know the center of south australia to the east coast of australia so very different uh from the first part of the journey so tell us a little bit about the route that you took uh, and the ways in which it differed from um, the, the first part of the journey. Yeah, I mean, it, it was almost like a completely separate trip. It was it was so different in some ways. So, so I from the Flinders Ranges, I trucked the camels back up to Cooper Pedy to a station called Mount Clarence Station, and that was exactly where I had finished off the previous year. Um, so I started back there, and then I basically headed east sort of just around the side of Cooper Pedy. I followed the dog fence uh, for a little way and then basically took the, the track to William Creek around the south end of Lake Eyre uh, up to Cameron Corner and then on the dog fence again, which follows the border basically towards the east coast. Uh, and then after when the dog fence finishes, then the, the line became a little bit more squiggly, I guess, as we started to get into mountainous terrain and and uh, we're weaving back and forth on various roads and trying to find the quietest, you know, quietest place for the camels. So, um, yeah, it was it was probably the biggest thing, I guess, really in the second half was was people. Um, the this the first half of my trip, I'd because of you know a number of factors because we were in WA and WA as a state is is pretty remote and so is sort of northern South Australia as well so there's not very many people uh, in those areas Um, and also because COVID had started then probably in the in the six months when I started I probably passed a total of about 20 vehicles I would say just you know that randomly passed us by not people coming out to meet us or you know station owners or anything but yeah so 20 in six months and then it all of a sudden the second half it went to about you know at the beginning even easily you know five or six a day and then it obviously increased more and more from there and you know to the point where you know coming into Byron Bay obviously it was 
you know, constant traffic, constant tra- and holding up constant traffic because we're <laughs> very slow on the roads. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I mean, I guess that was the difference really is also when you first started out in March 2020, um, the country had gone into lockdown and you were performing your own uh, form of extreme social distancing. Mm. Um, people weren't travelling at all um, at that time. And, and I remember you saying how, you had almost relied on the fact that you would pass, uh, there would be passing traffic just in case there was anything you needed or anyone you needed to communicate mm. through or water drops, all that kind of thing. So I guess what happened in that year since you set out is that Australians really discovered their own backyard in a way they've never done so before. Uh, and they've taken to the roads in droves because they can't go anywhere or they weren't able to go anywhere else at the time. So I was wondering about that. Did that mean that there were just a lot more people out on even on the rough roads, on the tracks and on the trails um, than you had really factored in when you were planning it? Yeah, absolutely. And and that was kind of in some ways, you know, the, the lovely thing or that has been one of the the positive uh positives about covid i guess is you're right yeah australians got out there and decided to to travel the outback which was really nice to see and i had and it was you know it was a it was kind of a double edged sword in some ways you know it was lovely because after being alone for for 6 months really the previous year it was really nice to be able to share the camels and the journey and everything with, with all these people. And, and, you know, and people were fascinated. I would have right from the beginning when I was walking along the Udna data track, I would, you know, almost every four wheel drive or, you know, camper trailer would stop because they were just so, so curious about what I was doing and they wanted to come and see the camels and meet the camels. And, um, uh, so that was, it was lovely being able to, 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 you know, show them that and, um, and share the journey with other people. But then, you know, on the, at the same time, the camels then had to get used to, to traffic and, um, and also, you know, it can, it can hold you up a little. So I remember at one point on the Unadada track and this was, you know, because I just wasn't used to the amount of attention and, and the amount of cars passing. I, I sort of a couple of days, you know, thought, oh no, we're rigid we're losing, you know, you can easily lose an hour just stopping with camels and talking to people. So I ended up sort of climbing up and over a sand dune and, and, and hiding, <laughs> going cross country so that I could have some time to myself. I sort of thought, oh, we're going to have to tackle this further on, on the East Coast. So I'm just going to make the most of the outback while I can. And, it's interesting uh, because that you're you're with the way that you've tackled it all along. You have no problem going off track. You have everything <laughs> you need, and the cars right. can't necessarily follow that's you there. That's right, <laughs> and that's the beauty of camel trekking. I think you know what I I, I remember thinking that was amazing. Is that you, you know you're walking on the Nadada track and you can have streams of traffic going there. You walk one sand dune over, and it's like you're the only person in the world. You know, no one's no one it goes there you know it's it's beautiful yeah and it's such a, a stunning part of the world and um and I guess by the time anyone gets onto the Udnadada track even though they're you know fully sort of geared up four-wheel drive you don't really expect that there's you're going to see a lot of people yourself even if you're driving there but like I say this year of all years mm. um, it's been pretty well you know uh chockers uh, on some of these uh, iconic outback tracks and uh <laughs> And I guess that, you know, uh, to, to, to see somebody like you is the kind of thing they're going to want to be putting on their Instagram page. So, yeah, I can completely get why you uh, had to uh, go uh, go off 
peas to off try <laughs> yes. but uh, now what about so it's been a very wet um couple of years we're in our second La Nina um and so there's been a lot of rain anyway coming down through some of the arid areas did you um, you know come across any issues with um water on some of the tracks or across the landscape um in the outback it, it was it turned out to be fantastic for us actually um I mean the season was just remarkable I straight up well when I left Cooper Pedy really I it's very, very much a, a sort of Martian-style landscape. I mean, it, it looks like you're on the face of the moon. There's, uh, it is just flat gibber plains. And actually, a lot of this year was was quite different from last year in that sense too. A, a lot of the deserts, a lot going up to the Streslecki and heading just before you get to Cameron Corner, uh, all of that area is 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 gibber plain country. So you have these vast, vast vast plains where you there's not a tree in sight uh and these flat gibber rocks which press down on the clay and kind of almost look like tiles I guess um and and that kind of country can be very barren in a bad year but when you get a great year it's actually full of feed it's you know people don't believe how much feed there is in in you know country like that but between all of these gibber stones and these little pockets of clay you get all these amazing succulents and uh little salt bushes and um and yeah the, it's there's there was just so much feed for the camels so um I was very lucky I think to to traverse this year um and I basically you know pretty much the whole way across didn't have an issue with being able to feed the camels there was always always something for them to browse on um you know to the point where it was it was just you know like lollies camel lollies everywhere (laughs) all over the sand dunes um and and also I timed the you know my trek across the Streslecki it was booming with wildflowers absolutely booming with wildflowers and then onto Cameron Corner too uh between the dunes it looked like it was it was packed with clover it was, I had no idea that clover would grow between sand dunes in the outback um, to the point where, where there was even cattlemen out there that were saying they were losing some of their cattle from, from bloat because the feed was so unusually rich between these, these dunes. It looked like a, you know, a green field between them. So, so that it worked out to my advantage, really the amount of rain and, um, and we, yeah, there, there wasn't really too many, too many issues with the water until I sort of got closer towards the Great Dividing Range and then it just became just a lot of rainy days, you know, which for camels is a little bit miserable. They're not used to that amount of rain. Um, and uh, and that's when I started. And also then I was starting to get into the humid parts of Australia too and and uh, so there was the health issues that come with that, um, you know, taking camels out of an arid environment, putting them into an environment where there's humidity and um uh you know you can get bacterial infections their feet get soggy um you know all sorts of stuff like that they can get rain scald you know so I was I was very worried about that and you um when did you first find yourself walking on a a bitumen road you know a, a, a highway if you like where did you first uh you know really get off a, a, mm. a track and onto a road I think it was probably Hebel. There's a little town called Hebel, which is um, uh, just south of Dirrambandi. 
um, Western or Southwestern Queensland. And Hebel was really, I guess, the, almost the marker of the end of the outback for me. Um, and that it was from Hebel onwards that all of a sudden there was fences either side of, of roads. Um, and so that, that re- it became very, very different from then onwards, basically, because I'd been used to traveling across stations where I could contact a station owner and, you know, I would be on the road for maybe a week crossing their station and I could just camp wherever I liked in that week and, you know, pull off whenever we were tired or whenever there was a great patch of food, uh, and just set up camp. And then all of a sudden, yeah, after Hebel, it, it became, uh, you know, you had to be a lot more organised because um, I had to almost know where all my camp spots were going to be because I couldn't just pull in wherever. And had you planned that in advance or were you, did you really have to just do it as you went because you would never really know how long anything would take to travel? So was it, were you making, is that what took up a lot of your, your time was sort of planning mm. the next stop? Yeah, yeah, it did take up a lot of time and a lot of uh, logistics. Um, I was lucky that um, this year my partner Jimmy dropped out um, all my food supplies to me about once a month. So every time I would do these monthly stops, we would replenish the food boxes, fill up the jerry cans, so on, and then we'd actually drive ahead for a little way in the car um, and we were able to meet property owners and kind of plan the trip via vehicle and then and then come back because I had sort of I sort of had an idea you know of where I was going and as I got closer to the east coast actually the the summer that I took off previously I had driven around myself uh, all of the back streets of Byron just trying to find the quietest roads to the coast so I had a rough idea but you know, all of that fine-tuned planning where you literally have to uh, know exactly where you're staying that night. You have to contact, you know, because because you need to work out the Ks between people's paddocks and, you know, you need to make contact with those people and ask whether, you know, you can stay there. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a lot, a lot of logistics this year. And then, of course, there would have been more and more people and more and more people wanting to talk to you. Um, mm. So tell us about, did you bump into anybody famous or anybody interesting? Were there any uh, uh, any stories from, from that part of the journey? Oh, I did have a few encounters, I guess. One of them, one of them happened early, uh, early in the year when I was out. Um, yeah, I think I was on the Udna Data track at that point, actually. And... Um, uh, I, I met a beautiful old gentleman who is, he had just turned a hundred, his name, well, he's known as Wilco. And uh, he was an old camelman that I had, I had read about and just sort of a legend for the fact that he has worked with camels for, for a number of years. And, and he is, you know, continue up into his nineties, he was, he was going out and riding camels through the desert with, um, uh, with another organization run by a friend, Andrew Harper. So, that was a chance encounter on the road there, which was lovely. Um, and, uh, yeah, and a few and a few other sort of random ones. I actually had um, a, a best friend from, from high school. Her parents drove past on the Outback Spirit Bus and they pulled the entire Outback Spirit Bus over because they were like, oh, we know this girl. <laughs> <laughs> so, there was, so it's amazing, you know, it's a vast country, but sometimes it feels like such a small world. 
And then finally, you, um, you, you got nearer and nearer to your end point at Byron Bay. Did you start to, because obviously it would have got busier and the roads would have been busy. I mean, it's a pretty uh, lively place up there these days. Um, did you start to feel that the end was drawing near? And did that, how did you feel about the fact that it was, it was gonna end, you were going to finish quite soon? Mm. I think it was interesting because, you know, I think everyone imagined that I would sort of arrive on the East Coast and straight out of the desert and it would be this sort of overwhelming finish of, oh, my goodness, the trip's ended. But in, in some ways it, it wasn't like that at all. It, it kind of was a very much a, a winding down, I think. And um, I had been probably in, in some ways the trip almost ended for me out around Gundawindi. So I'd been taking the, um, one of the grain, the grain train um, lines into Gundawindi and it was about there that I had my, one of my last nights camping out on my own. Um, and, yeah, and that was a real moment actually because I, from then onwards I, I sort of, Basically, well, once I once I reached Texas and and I I was much closer to the East Coast, so I had friends at this point that were coming out and could walk a day or two with me, and um, uh, yeah, I was just seeing a lot more people out on the road and and so on. And um, I had a couple more nights camping on my own, but it was um, it was almost I think from Gundawindi that it it really didn't become it was no longer the trip that I had begun at the beginning on the West coast. It was like I mentioned, there was, you know, because of the fact that, you know, constantly you're staying in people's paddocks. So people are inviting you into their homes to have dinner and, you know, um, you actually sort of in some ways rarely get a night where you're just camping and cooking your own food around the fire because, you know, everyone wants to be a part of the journey, which is, which is absolutely lovely, but it, you know, it, it was just nothing like the trip that I had started where I would just pull into camp wherever and, and unsaddle the camels and just, you know, watch them graze and then quietly cook my meal and, you know, go to sleep under the stars. It was, it was just very different. So, um, yeah, I remember sort of having the, this last night sitting around the fire and I watched the full moon rise and the camels were, were grazing and it was a real peaceful moment and I in some ways sort of said goodbye to the trip at that point and that was emotional that that definitely was um you know because I knew from then on that it would become I would need the support around me and and I really did and and it was amazing I had yeah Jimmy um my partner Jimmy came over and and he was able to give me support with both logistics and also traffic management further on towards casino I had my friend Kieran and Kathy at other times uh, come in and they were able to give me support with a vehicle driving behind the camels so so it, it right towards the the east coast it really became like a team effort I guess yeah and I, I guess you know that was always going to be that, that's really part of the journey isn't it that, that you've you, you've traversed the continent of Australia like few others ever have you've actually walked the whole width of the continent um and you know even when you fly from sydney to perth it's a long way in an airplane <laughs> and uh, and and you've seen it at ground level and moving at a slow pace um has that experience changed you 
Yeah, I think it, I think it has in some ways. I think, um, I mean, I think probably one of the biggest things was I really learned to compartmentalize the whole journey. I think in some ways it might still take maybe a number of, of years or so for it to sink in the, the magnitude of, of what I've done and what the camels have done as well. Um, because I really had to split everything into, into stages and phases to make it manageable in my head. Um, and like I said, it was almost like last year was almost a separate trip to, to what it was like this year. And then further down from that, you know, when I finished in Byron, it was almost like, you know, people were sort of congratulating me and in my head, it just didn't seem real because I sort of thought, oh, well, all I've done is I've just finished the Byron leg. You know, we've just, Mm. we've just finished this hurdle. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's hard to, to really grasp the size of it, I think for myself, because I, I was forced to do that. I remember, you know, there was times where I would let my mind wander when I was right back at the beginning in Western Australia, I'd let my mind wander and sort of think about what it was like to finish in Byron or, or what it was like to do the entire thing. And I would just get so overwhelmed that I would end up, you know, in tears most of the time thinking that it was just too, too huge. To comprehend and especially in those moments when I was out in the great Victoria desert and it was just felt like it was just never gonna the sand dunes would never end kind of thing um so so yeah I think it'll take a while for it to sink in but I I um I think I guess it I guess it means that I guess I'll always look back on this experience and realize the strength of my own willpower and and when you talk about, you know, rather than letting the huge task ahead overwhelm you, really putting one foot in front of the other, literally and metaphorically, and breaking it down, um, are there lessons in for every for all of us really in tackling or, or not allowing ourselves to be completely overwhelmed when we when we've got big challenges ahead? Mm, I think so, definitely. You know, and and especially you know, in some ways it has sort of run parallel to this, this drama with, with COVID unfolding. And, and I think that that is a big lesson in that is to take, you know, every day at a time. And, and, um, and, you know, I learned really with the, out with the camels too, to, to remain flexible. Um, you know, the whole trip I had to, to, you know, you have to constantly be reassessing a situation and, and take every day as it comes, because you never know when something might change. You know, you've got a lot of factors out there out of your control, you know, the weather's out of your control, you know, the health of your camels sometimes about is out of your control, you know, that, you know, I, I began this whole trip thinking that I would do the expedition in a year, uh, you know, and then, and then realized very early on that, oh no, it's going to take me a lot longer than that. So, so that was an entire, you know, readjustment too, that I had to make. And, um, and I, yeah, so I think, I think there's a big lesson in that. And what does somebody do once they've spent two years crossing Australia with camels? What, what, what's Sophie Madison going to do <laughs> next? We all want to know what, what, and does it involve camels? <laughs> oh, I think it'll always involve camels. Um, I mean, I'm I'm so proud of of my gang, and and uh, I'm excited to to do. You know, they're just a great bunch of camels now. I think you know, we've been through a lot of struggle in the in the training and the you know having them mature and you know become braver and braver as the trip came on. Now it's just it's amazing to see. To, to fling them into an environment that they are so absolutely unfamiliar with and they just take it in their stride now. So, um, 
I'm really excited to to get back out into into the desert parts of Australia. Um, I there's a there's a little sort of niggling at the back of my head going, oh, you've done you know one desert really properly. You've done a couple of others in partial in a partial sense. There's ten major deserts in Australia, and uh, oh, could we tick them all off maybe? So uh, yeah, I'm I'm very keen to to check out you know the Simpson Desert, the um, the Great Sandy Desert, the Gibson Desert, and uh, and see what they have in store. And you um, said, but, um, Sophie, you said one of the reasons that you did it in the first place because you didn't know a single person who had ever been into the Great Victoria Desert of Australia. And uh, you feel that the deserts are really, I mean, they take a, a, a really vast uh, part of the continent, but they are very little known by people, uh, I guess, along the eastern seaboard uh, mainly. We don't get out there. So what what do you think, you know, going forward, is that something you're going to advocate for to encourage people to get out into these remarkable ecosystems? Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm very I am really passionate about that for sure. I thinking back about the Great Victoria Desert, I actually had even I had a journalist the other day that said, "Oh, I didn't know that there was a desert in Victoria." <laughs> and I said, "No, no, no, not 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 in Victoria. It's the Great Victoria Desert." Um, but uh, yeah, so I I am I you know I I think that yeah we know you know a lot of people yeah know very little about them and and I would really love to do some work you know alongside um you know some of the conservation and science and you know ecology that's happening out there in those deserts I'm you know I'm, I don't have a scientific background myself but I, I would really like to to learn more and and be able to um you know use use camels in in that sense and um uh yeah be able to you know, there is, there's work happening out in the, in the Simpson desert at the moment, you know, there's a great organization that goes out there and, and uses camels as pack animals to, to, um, explore these remote regions of, of the Simpson. And I think that's a fantastic thing, you know, camels still have a use and, um, and uh, yeah, they get you, like I said, off cross country and, um, you know, and they have a very, very small footprint on the landscape. You can be much more in tune with the land in that way. So, yeah, I'd, I would definitely advocate that. And so if you tell us the names of your camels again. Yes, I have um, Delilah, who uh, she took lead position um, at the end of this year. She, uh, Jude, was demoted. He was my lead last year. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so Delilah, Jude, Clayton, Charlie, and Mac. And what is next for those guys? Where are they heading to and what, what, what's their next adventure? Mm, well, they're heading actually back to the Flinders Ranges. Um, and, um, and it's probably from there, I'm going to look at sort of, like I said, being able to digest the trip a little bit more and realize the trip in a whole, um, I'm going to try and, and I think potentially, you know, write a book or, or give it a go anyway. Um, and, uh, so those guys are going to be living, um, in the Flinders ranges with me and, uh, I will give them a, a very big summer break off and probably most of next year off to, uh, the, some of the younger two of my boys, Charlie and Clayton probably have another year or so of growing to do. So I think it, it would be good for them to just have a, a year just on on lovely camel feed out there being able to grow to their full size and uh and then you know maybe 
not next year, but the following year, we'll look at, uh, yeah, what we what we might explore next and where I might go with them. But they will definitely always remain in my care. I mean, they're, they're absolute. You know, they're my they're my besties and uh, my <laughs> uh, my little my little gang of of legends and um, and uh, yeah, no, they're great camels now. So they will always remain with me. Well, look, we look forward uh, with great anticipation to seeing uh, where you go next, what you do. Um, I love the idea of, of getting out into the deserts with, with camels instead of, you know, charging all over the place in a four-wheel drive. Um, <laughs> it's got something, um, yeah, something sort of, like, as you say, a low footprint associated with it uh, and they're such, uh, so well adapted for those environments. So we look forward to seeing where you pop up next, Sophie, and... Uh, congratulations from all of us here at Australian Geographic for completing your epic traverse and uh, and we wish you well for the future. Well, thank you, Chrissy, and, and a big thank you to Australian Geographic as well, who has been, you know, my, my only sponsor really throughout the trip. So um, it's been wonderful from the beginning to, uh, to have that support from, from the society. So thank you so much. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email at podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find special offers for our listeners. So don't wait and go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Until next time.